Hello? Well, I'll have two hands tonight. I'll either be done in half the time or I'll go twice as long. More and now, okay, school, y'all all got to get up, don't you? Some have to get up. Let me get my, I'm not used to these kinds of things, y'all. Okay. Do I look professional? I feel like I need to be, yes, can I take your order? Welcome to Burger King. That's okay with cheese. Okay. Well, it's good to see everybody tonight. Um, as we get started, I don't need this. Um, let's. We're going to open in prayer, but before we do, how about some announcements? Tim and Yvonne are not here. Burgers and Bibles is this Saturday at J. Lou Park. Do you know where J. Lou Park's at? No? It's by, you know where the library's at? It's behind the library. That's where J. Lou? About a mile away. That's where J. Lou Park is at, and it is from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., and if you haven't been to Burgers and Bi I think it's Bibles and Burgers. I always want to put Burgers first. It's not a priority thing. I don't know. Bibles and Burgers. I always say the Burgers. I'm sorry. But it is a time where there are exactly the name is exactly what it is. They give out Bibles to anybody who needs them, and they also serve a free burger. But they also pray with people. They make a lot of contact with, with people who are at, just people who are at the park, um, a lot of uh, some homeless community. They're really building a lot of rapport with them, doing a great work. And many times you see people coming in from that ministry. So if you would like to be a part of that, that is Saturday, 11 a.m to 2 p.m., and it is a great place to volunteer. Um, also, the Hispanic ministry, if you're a part of that, you're having a Sunday potluck this Sunday right after church in the FLC, and then, of course, the fifth Sunday Friend Day is coming up on December the 31st. I found out after I said that the Black Eyed Pea thing, you know, that uh, apparently other people have other little things, Right? I was told that in the Hispanic community, they eat 12 grapes. Is that right? Tw I'm getting a nod back here. 12 grapes, and that's for 12 months of the year for prosperity, right? So I'm expecting to see a lot of grapes and black-eyed peas on the table. And we'll figure out, we'll just eat all of them and figure out, hey, hopefully some, and then we'll pray too, and we'll, we'll believe that, you know. Oh, well, that's, this goes with it, doesn't it? Well, you're going to have to bring that because, see, that's a, it's called a potluck. So you're assigned cornbread with jalapenos. That's right. So as we get started tonight, I'm wondering, does anybody have any prayer requests? Anybody have anything that you, you, you have something urgent? Yes, sir. Well, that's, that's, that's urgent. Let's pray for, I'm sure we've all got unsafe family members, you know. Yes, let's pray for them. Does anybody have anything else that's just there's something you need? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's pray for this family. Yep. Let's pray. Let's, yes. Yes, we got Dan is sick. Let's, let's t yes, ma'am. Oh, 
Yes, absolutely. Let's absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, God, that you hear and answer prayer, Lord. We come before you tonight, and we take these needs before you, knowing, God, that we can do nothing without you, Lord God, but there's all things are possible to them that believe, Lord God. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, that you will heal these bodies that are sick, Lord God. I pray for those who need who need assistance, Lord God, in making decisions in the future, God, who have circumstances, Lord God, that are standing before them, that you would be with them and guide them. I pray for this son and this car, God, that you would make a way for this to be resolved. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us, Father, ears to hear tonight, a heart to receive, God, and the will to obey. We invite you, Holy Spirit, into this place and ask that you would just illuminate your word. Give us, Lord, Lord God, fruit that would remain. God, we thank you for all of your blessings. We thank you, God, for this church, for this body. We thank you, God, for being in this time, in, in the land at this time, God. We pray, God, that you would minister your grace and mercy, Lord God, to our families. Bring in unsaved loved ones, God, we pray. Raise them up to serve you in the fullness and wholeness of their heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I believe it, don't you? Well, last week we, we talked about the sword, that you had to come under the sword in order. That, that's Many times we've heard that in church about you have to be under authority in order to walk in authority. And I think we've always used that scripture rightly. We've used that concept of scripture rightly in that we, we say that you have to come under spiritual authority. And that's good in order to walk in authority. But the concept is even broader. And I think Mike used it Sunday morning. And he talked about a police officer that if he were to, in his badge in uniform, go into a bank and pull his sidearm and, and show them their badge and say, give me your money. He would obviously be stepping outside of his authority and he would no longer be walking in authority and he'd soon be in jail, right? And so we understand those concepts. But last week, I really wanted to bring the, a more of a fullness of the concept to each and every one of us and, and find out, are we walking under the authority of the word? Walking under the authority of the word. Is the word the authority in our life? It should be. But many times I find that people like to sort of you know, alter truth enough to fit their preferences. They like to tweak things just a bit for their own selfish comfort. I mean, nobody in here, right? Certainly not. But we all, we all understand that. I call it, I call it curated truth. I mean, how many times, everything nowadays is curated, isn't it? What do I mean by that? You can order your groceries online and you go on, you know, and you select your, just what you want. You curate everything, even your dog food. You can have it curated. Pet toys. I'm not a pet person, so I don't understand that. Some of you are like, hey, lay off. It's important. It's important to entertain our dogs and cats. I don't know. But you can have this, right? 
curated to your door. Everything. We can, you can have anything you want just delivered and curated. And, so many, and it's so convenient, isn't it? But we get in our mindset that church should be curated. And we do that too. We like this, we can sit at home in our pajamas. Not you, because you're here, right? And listen to this worship service and then attend that preaching service over here. And then you can give some offering over here. And then you've just kind of curated your whole religious experience, haven't you? But what are you missing there? Relationship, fellowship, unity, the body, being able to connect with one another, accountability. You're missing the struggle. And you all need the struggle. I need struggle. You, we all need that. So we, we started out last week, I gave you some sword confusion. Where Jesus, I told you in Luke 22, 35, and 36, where he said, he said, if you, you remember when I sent you out, I sent you out without a coat or bag or anything, told you not to take anything with you. And he said, and you did that when he sent the 70 out. And they came back and he said, did you lack anything? He said, nothing. They said, nothing. He said, okay, now. He said, phase two, basically. He didn't say that. I'm saying that. Phase two. Now, if you have a money bag, take it. If you have an extra set of clothes, take it. If you have a cloak, take it. And if you have a sword, he said, and, he said, and take also a sword. And then he says, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And people are like, oh. What do you think? Then he, he, he's kind of, Jesus was sometimes very puzzling when he said things. And then he said, he said that, that he was going to, that the members of a household, mother would be separated from daughter and father from son and siblings. There was going to be, and, I, and he just sort of left it. And the disciple, one of the disciples says, there's two swords among us. He said, that is enough. Just goes on. Do you think that many times people are going, with Jesus? I mean, it's like he talked and they were like, I know you're trying to speak to me. And that is puzzling to us too. And when he says, when he says in Matthew 10 and 34, he says that, he said, you think I've come to bring peace on earth? He said, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. And then Luke tells that same account this way. Luke 12 and 51, it says, you think I've come to bring peace on the, sword? He said, uh, on the earth? He said, nay, I haven't come to bring peace, but division. So that, that sort of sets up some confusion for us. So buy one? You want us to buy a sword, a literal sword? You didn't come to bring peace, but you're the prince of peace? You, you came to bring division? Isn't, isn't that one of the things that God hates is sowing discord? It seems like there's all these con contradictions, doesn't there? But here's one thing I have observed in the Word of God. Anywhere there seems to be a contradiction, it's not so much a contradiction 
as it is an invitation. An invitation to lean in for greater revelation. Now we see this over and over. You see Moses when he's on the backside of the desert and he's, he's tending sheep in Midian for his father Jethro. And he's out one day in this place and he looks over on this mountain called Sinai. Mount Horeb. And he sees something very strange. What does he see? A bush burning. But it's not consumed. Well, in that arid climate, it would be, spontaneous combustion is a thing. And so a bush might catch on fire. But what, what, what happens when bushes catch on fire in an arid? But this one, he's like... That's a contradiction. How could wood burn longer and, not, and it not be destroyed and not turn to ash? So he leans into that contradiction and he receives a revelation because that contradiction was an invitation. And he goes, steps aside to look at it. And when he sees, he goes to lean into that contradiction. He finds a revelation. And that revelation is about his assignment. Moses does the same thing. He goes, uh, this is the same guy. He does it again. He goes to Sinai again. And he's on the mountain with God. And God says something again, completely bewildering. Whenever they've made the golden calf, God says, These people of yours who you brought out to this wilderness have corrupted themselves by worshiping an idol, and I'm going to destroy them all. And Moses is like, Time out. These people of mine? Wait, you're the person who lit the bush that didn't go out, who made me throw down a staff that turned to a snake that I picked up and I've done. I, no. I, these are not my people. These are your people. This is not my problem. See, in there, and you can't destroy them, God. You can't destroy them because every nation in the world is on looking right now. And you're going to look. This is not going to look good. You see, the contradiction made an opening for Moses to lean in for the greater revelation. And the greater revelation was, God, show me who you are. Show me your glory and his goodness passed by and then he became an intercessor and delivered the Torah to the whole nation of Israel and to us as well and so we see these contradictions in the word of God the contradiction is not there to push you away it will push some people away many contradictions in life will push people away over and over and over again and it's pushed up people you know away I just can't serve a God like that. I just, they, they perceive something that's happened. Maybe it's suffering in the world. Maybe it's something that they think is not fair. Have y'all ever known anybody like that? They think that something's going on in the church that's just not fair. 
And so, instead of understanding that any place there's a contradiction is an invitation for them to lean in for a greater revelation. And what's the purpose of the greater revelation? For them to be a part of the solution. Isaiah 58 says, talks about the appropriate fast for God. He said, this is a fast I've chosen for you to be hungry and have your voice heard on high. He said, this is not the fast I've chosen. He said, the fast I've chosen is for you to deal your bread out to the hungry. Think about that for a second. Your bread, your provision, your revelation, your understanding, your resources, your time. God's invitation to all of us is to do the work of an intercessor. To deal your bread to the hungry. That's the revelation that God provides. So we see that there's an invitation for a revelation and revelation is for intercession. Now, another odd thing is, is that Peter did have a sword, didn't he? And how do we know he had a sword? Because he, in the garden, when Jesus was arrested, he cut the ear off of one of the guards whose name was Malchus. He was, and what does Jesus do? Dude. Puts his ear back on. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And what does he tell Peter? Put your sword away. I mean, are you thinking that Peter's probably like, I am so confused. You said to bring a sword. And then I used the sword in the appropriate way. I thought a sword should be used. And you've healed the guy. You put his ear back on. And then he gives Peter the speech. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Who can figure this man out? But there's more to the story, isn't there? We understand that the sword that he's telling us to go and acquire is not the sword for war. It's not the sword to shed, to shed blood of, a, of any other human. The sword he's telling us to go get is a, it's a sword of authority. It's telling us that there's going to be combat. He's telling us that the next leg of the journey, there's going to be struggle. And he's telling us, I love the part where he says, sell your cloak. The cloak would have been the outer garment, sort of a luxury item. You got your clothes and then you got your cloak. The cloak would keep you, in the desert nights, would keep you warm. You could also roll it up and use it as a pillow. The cloak would be something that would bring you protection and comfort. He's saying, this, you're going to need to make provision for this journey. I think personally it speaks of, of the length of how long this next leg of the journey is going to take. And also, I think the fact of the matter is, is that so many people will sell the sword for the cloak. But not many people want to sell the cloak of comfort for the sword. 
And if you're going to be people who know how to wield the sword of God's authority, know how to set under the sword of the the sword of authority, then we have to be people who are willing to get uncomfortable. Nothing grows in comfort. Nothing changes. Tonight we're going to go to 1 Samuel 21, 8. 21 and 8. As we keep, we're going to keep this sword in focus and we're going to look at David. 1 Samuel 21 and 8. Kind of a strange story. Not one of the big preaching points for most people, but I just found something I thought was interesting here. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is... There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Now, this is the sword of God's victory for David. It's a reminder, but let me back up a little bit. Now, first off, here's some irony for you. If you already know the story, some of you are like, I don't even know this portion of Scripture Hang on, we'll get there. But those of you who know this portion of Scripture, I just want to, I want to zero in on the irony here just a little bit. The irony is that this is Goliath's sword that David used to protect Saul, to protect Saul's authority, to protect Saul's kingship. And now this is the sword that he has to go get to protect himself from Saul. That's just an interesting bit of irony. Now, some of you are going, I don't, I don't understand this, this story. Let's look back a little bit. David was anointed as he was a shepherd boy to be king. We know the story. After he was anointed, he realized that this anointing began to open doors. The Bible says in Proverbs that a man's gift will make a way for him and bring him before great men. Well, this gift, this anointing gift that the prophet Samuel had brought to the house of Jesse and poured on the head of David in the midst, in the front of his brothers, this anointing now had a special calling upon him that he would one day be king. But after he was anointed, you know what he did? He just went right back to the field and he began to keep the sheep just like he did before he was anointed. But the anointing was on his life. He was a harpist. He was a harpist before he was anointed, wasn't he? But after he was anointed, he was a harpist with a special gifting. He, was a, he wasn't just a harpist. He was now an anointed harpist. Now, before he was a shep- before he was anointed, he was also a shepherd, wasn't he? But after he was anointed, he was still a shepherd, but he was an anointed shepherd. When he was a harpist, he was out playing in the field, and someone came by and heard him. And they said, man, that boy can play. 
man, that's good. And so it just so happens, oddly enough, that Saul had a, had a tormenting spirit and he needed someone, a minstrel, someone who could play music. And that anointing opened the door for David because he wasn't just a harpist anymore, was he? He was an anointed harpist. There's a lot to be said about the anointing. You can have talents and giftings, and they can, you can be real good at it. But I would rather have someone who's anointed all day long. Someone who's anointed, you might have a good preacher. I'd rather be anointed than be a good preacher because the anointing will make you think I'm a great preacher. I don't have to be any better. And so here's David. Before he was anointed, he was a good shepherd. After he was anointed, he was a great shepherd. How do I know? Because a lion came and he killed the lion. And then a bear came and he killed the bear. So now he's got some anointing on his life. He grew an understanding of this anointing. So here we understand that David is brought before Goliath in the valley of Elah. And what does he do? He has a sling and a stone. You know the story. He pulls the sword of Goliath from the sheath of Goliath and he uses it to kill Goliath. This son of, this man, this David, he is a giant slayer. And he's just a child. That's amazing. He's too young to be doing what he's doing, but he's anointed. And so now we have Christ who is the type. He is the, well, he's not actually the type. David's the type. In theological terms, Christ is called the anti-type. The type and then the fulfillment is the anti-type. And so we see this in Jesus, and we see that not only was David, who was a giant slayer, and in his reign, all the giants were, were taken out of the land. There was no more giants left after the reign of David. Then we see where Jesus comes onto the New Testament scene, and we have to see him through the lens of a giant slayer. But there were no giants. Did he slay any giants? Well, he did in, in type. He slayed leprosy, blindness, demonic oppression, lack and circumstance, everything. These were the giants of the day. And he, he had complete and total authority because Christ means what? Anointed. He's the anointed one. And so he comes on the scene and every mouthy giant was relieved of their heads just like Goliath was. Their headship, their authority, their voice and their power. But when Jesus came into his ministry, many people thought that he was going to be coming to do what? The Messiah, to set up a kingdom on earth. And so John the Baptist, who had called him, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. He, even in prison, he sent messengers to Jesus and said, is this the one? Or do we look for another? Have you ever in your life questioned, ah, am I doing, is this, is this right? Has circumstance ever talked you out of keeping your place? Have you ever grown tired or weary or things didn't go the way you thought they should go? Am I talking to real people? And you're like, ah. I love what Jesus sends back, the messengers. I mean, he's not like, yeah, dude, I'm the Messiah. He said, Go, he said, so he replied to his messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. He basically quotes Isaiah 61 again. And what is he saying there? I am the anointed one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to. Dun, 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 dun. Are you seeing that? I'm the anointed one. Jesus, in this typology, he steps forth as the one who will sit on the throne of David. David, the king who goes out and slays giants. Only these giants this time, they're not 10 foot tall. They're not 8 foot tall. Now they're the giants of demonic oppression, of blindness, of sickness, of disease. All of Jesus is anointed to slay these giants. And he does it. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 and 8, he led captivity captive. And Colossians 2 and 15 said, having disarmed the powers and authorities. What? What did he do? Have we seen that before? A disarming? Where have we seen that? I just told you about it. David pulled the sword from Goliath. That's called disarming. And then he says, he Disarmed the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them. I mean, what a spectacle. Triumphing over them. How did he do? You're like, I didn't see him ever jump on a giant, and I never saw Jesus do that. What are you talking? It tells us how he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus embraced the death of the cross. See, he got his passport to this earth through Mary's womb. And he was wrapped, the Son of God, God himself, was wrapped in flesh. I don't know if you know this or not, but that's how babies get their flesh, is in a mother's womb. It grows over them. It's part of the human, you all know this, that's how humans are made. And so, but Jesus was not made made of the seed of man he was made of the seed of God and Mary's womb provided all the necessary ingredients to give him his body of a human just like your mama gave you your body of a human he got his passport to this planet as a human the God man sired fathered by God. Fully God and fully human. The issue was this now. He needed a passport to go somewhere else, didn't he? He needed a passport to go. He was going to go back, but he had some other stop to make. He needed a passport to go there. He had to get to the grave. And the only way to get to the grave is with something else. What else do you need to get to the grave? Ah, but what is the way? But we have to get to what causes death. 
Ah, so sin, he took all the sin of the world on the cross. And by taking the sin and my punishment and your punishment, he got his passport into the netherworld, the grave. And he went into the grave. And the Bible says he took back the keys. Keys are authority to death, hell, and the grave. And he resurrected. So the cross becomes our symbol of authority. It's the symbol of the death of Jesus, but it is the symbol of the authority of over every principality and power and ruler of wickedness. It's the symbol of authority over every sickness and disease, over death. And if we don't know that, we'll never believe it. The cross, the sword of authority. Christ then made a new territory within this territory. It's called the territory of victory in Jesus. Or the kingdom of God. And this territory, within this territory, the entrance to this kingdom is by death or surrender to his cross. It's the surrender or the death of the old man and the resurrection of the new man created in Christ Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus one night, which is so ironic that he's sneaking around to talk to Jesus in the night. And Jesus like spins the whole thing and goes, dude, you're the one in darkness. And he tells Nicodemus, you must be born of the spirit. You've got to be born of the water and the spirit. What is he talking about? Well, who in here is born of water? Raise your hand. Every single person is born of water. You're right. Wait a minute. I heard that's bad. It's not baptism. Every, the whole planet's born of water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, the deep water. And he said, let there be light. And light was. And he called forth everything out of that deep water as he brought the cosmos forth. So in essence, all of you have been born from water because the very creative structure by which you got here was born of water. Every natural person is born of water. But you have to be born of what else? Spirit, you have to be born of spirit. And that is how we are born through the cross, by spirit. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new spirit creation, born of the spirit. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are in this new, if you're born of the spirit, you are in this new territory tonight as a new man. An already and not yet aspect of the kingdom. So what is the mandate? What is your mandate tonight? What is your mandate? Extend the boundaries of the kingdom by being about the Father's business. You see, this is not geography. This kingdom is not yet about geography. It one day will be about geography and the millennial reign of Christ. And in the center of it will be in the Middle East in a place called Jerusalem. But right now, your mission is this. You're on a recruiting mission. Did you know that? You're recruiting enlistment into the kingdom of God. And you're recruiting it. It's an already. You're, I'm already in the kingdom. Well, you are, but you're not already in the kingdom. 
The kingdom's in you, and you're about the business of the kingdom. But one day there's coming a kingdom. See, I think many times we miss this aspect is that the Bible is moving us toward something very glorious, and it's called the resurrection from the dead. Why do you think you need a new body? Because you're going to be on a new earth. And you're going to need a new body. And that's what the body is for. It's because you're going to need dominion on the earth. And you're recruiting, enlisting people for the next era, the age to come. That's what we're doing. We're signing people up. That's the good news. We're saying you can now be saved. And Jesus is coming back. And we're going to be resurrected and get a glorified body. But you can't be in his presence if you have sin in your life. But don't worry because Jesus died on a cross for your sins. And whenever you surrender your life to him, his new life, the life of the Spirit comes alive in you. And you can live. Oh, yeah, it's going to cost you everything. I forgot to tell you that. Your old life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what do you want with that old nasty bag of junk anyway? I mean, you couldn't. If you have hope in this world only, you're of all men most miserable. My hope, I have a hope. See, this is what the kingdoms of, you thought, this is not about you getting all your wishes coming true. This is a family business. And all the sons have to go into this business. See, an American value is that when you can grow up, you can be anything you want to be. That's an American value. But that's not a kingdom value. It wasn't a Middle Eastern value. In this, in this biblical context, sons grew up to do what? Whatever their fathers did. Why do you think Jesus was a carpenter? He didn't say, Dad, I don't really want to be a carpenter. He was trained to be a carpenter. That's how it worked. So when we come into this family... You come into the family business. It's the highest priority to go, proclaim, baptize, train, remit sins. Have you ever read John 20 and it puzzled you? Whoever sins you remit, they're remitted. And whoever sins you retain, they're retained. What? The Catholics, they understood it in some weird ways. Whoever sins you remit, they're remitted, and whoever sins you retain, you retain. To remit. So it's like this. He's sending you out with a receipt book. You go out and write receipts for people. Ah, paid in full. Wait, would you receive? You, you got to go in the phone. Wait a minute. You got to forget that you, you have to completely surrender the totality of your life to Christ and submit to go in the family business. Okay, I'll, I'll keep this receipt for later. Remitting sins. You're like, I don't remit sins. I didn't, no, I'm, I just got the receipt book. I don't make the payment. The payment's already been bankrolled. So if I, in order for me to remit sins, it basically is me going out and telling the good news and holding the receipt book and seeing if people want to actually receive the receipt. 
Whoever sins you remit, they are remitted. So when you fail to preach the gospel, what have you failed to do? You failed to remit sins. See, this is the family business. And we are to go out and to set people in hope in Christ with the Maranatha message that he has come. And he will, because he's come, what will he do? He will come again. Redemption. He will redeem us from this lowly state, this, this altered state of deformity and destruction that remains in the old Adam. And he will raise up this lowly body. Because we have all borne the image of the man of dust. But one day, what will we bear the image of? The heavenly man. For when we see him, we will be what? Like him. See, this is the gospel. Christ in the David typology continues as the son of David. Christ, like David, defeated and shut the mouth of the giant with the giant's own sword. He hushed him with a rock, David did, and then silenced him with a sword. David then put the sword, where'd he put it? No, we just read it. Where'd he put it? He took it to the temple. He took the sword and he put it in the temple, in the house of God. He took the sword, which is the emblem of authority, and where did he put it? Where? In the house of God. He took the sword, which is the authority, and he put it in the house of God. What? Know you not? That your body is the temple, the house of God? Where's the sword's authority supposed to be? In your life. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Go, therefore. Lo, I will be with you always. And isn't it interesting? I just got to go back and look at this real quick. It is here, wrapped in a cloth. Somewhere before? Wrapped up. Here it is, wrapped in a cloth. Behind the ephod. What the heck is the ephod? The ephod was a priestly garment, a breastplate had jewels on the shoulders it carried in it only the high priest could wear it had in it two things the umen and the thumen stands for lights and perfection it was given a way given to Israel to find the will of God The perfect light. The perfect light. So when David inquired, should I go? He said, bring me the ephod. He didn't wear the ephod. 
The priests were the ephod. Check out Leviticus. So when he told Abathar, Ziklag, go get the ephod, he wasn't telling Abathar, put the ephod on me. He said, Abathar, stand there with the ephod on, and I'm going to inquire of the Lord. And the priest did what the priest did. He pulled out those two stones, and he inquired of the Lord. And I don't know how the Lord directed with those stones. The Bible does not say ever. He showed him what to do with those stones. Lights and perfection in light. He gave David perfect light. What did we say light was? Revelation. He guided him with perfect revelation. And so we see this high priestly garment, the ephod, is in the temple. Now, David didn't take the ephod, did he? It wasn't his to take. How did the ephod get to where David was at? Well, it's funny you should ask. Because after David took the sword, Saul showed up at that camp. And he murdered every single person at that camp looking for David. David found out that day the cost of the anointing because he had really handled himself foolishly and not telling them what he was doing. And he, he subjected that whole village to his ignorance. Have you ever subjected people to your ignorance? I think we all have, haven't we? See, there's a cost for anointing. And so many times in the house of God we pray for anointing but not realizing that the cost for the anointing takes a whole lot of responsibility and training. It's not something that you can just handle lightly. And so Abathar was the son of Ahimelech. Ahimelech was murdered. Abathar grabbed the ephod and escaped. And that's how David got the ephod. And so we understand who is our high priest? The sword of authority. Is behind his priestly work. It's his priestly work on the cross. Not only did he offer sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. So that we, as Romans 12 says, we can be a living sacrifice. Because Christ paid the price so that we could live. And we look here and we understand that David went and took the sword, the authority from the house of God to use it. The word of God, Reinhard Bonnke said, the word of God in my mouth is just as powerful as the word of God in Jesus' mouth. I love that statement. I just don't entirely agree with it. The word of God in my mouth is just as powerful as the word of God in Jesus' mouth. That may have been true for Reinhard Bonnke. You see, every person can't say that. Because not every person walks under the authority of the word. The word of God... In your mouth being powerful is subject to walking under the authority of the word and being about the Father's business. Though David was anointed and commissioned king, 
You know, it just didn't happen immediately for him, did it? He killed a lion and a bear. He was in the lion and bear training camp. You know? Got to test that in one. Many of us as parents, how many of us, if you were sent your kid out to do, you know, his, his chores, and he came back and he said, I was out there today and a lion came out and tried to take a sheep and I killed it. You'd be like, oh, you stay home. That's too dangerous for you. I killed a bear. See, many times as parents, we want to save our kids from the lions and the bears. They need the lions and the bears. They need the lions and the bears. If you're always rescuing them and moving them to another school every time they don't like a teacher or somebody bullies them, teach them how to deal with lions and bears. Is that fair? And I'm not saying in every situation. You know when to protect your kids. But there are sometimes we don't, need to, we don't need to pull them out of a situation. We need to let them, we need to instruct them how to rise to the occasion. The commission to be king welcomed the contest in David's life. His anointing, his commissioning to be king welcomed the contest. The lion and the bear? It was training to demonstrate the function of the anointing. It was for the good of others, and it carried a reward. Yes, it carried a great reward, but it also carried a great responsibility. Jesus said, I've told you these things that you may have peace in this world, and that, that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. See, the necessity of struggle is this in our life. What is the necessity of struggle? To show you how to win. Without struggle, there's no winning. You have to have struggle to teach you how to win. Without the trouble, we would never know the overcoming. We don't need to be people addicted to comfort. Be of good cheer. Take a faith posture whenever you're in the midst of struggle. How many of you have seen the scripture in Deuteronomy 32? I think it's about 7 or 9, somewhere in there. It says that when God delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage, he said... It was like an eagle that stirs its nest and hovers over its young. How does an eagle stir its nest? Stirs and he makes the nest uncomfortable first. Did you know that an eagle will build a nest and he puts these rocks and thorns and all these things into deep embedded into the, the nest? Rocks and thorns. And then on top of the rocks and thorns... Put soft down, feathers and straw, makes it so soft, lays that egg in that soft, cushy ground, and it incubates the egg, and the eagle comes, and the mama hunts and chews the food and pukes it in the eagle's mouth, and the eagle grows, and he loves his comfy, cushy situation. But then there comes a day that mama quits hunting for the eagle. Or daddy, they both. Both, both male and female eagles take care of the young. And then comes in, the, the eagle's like, belly's growling. 
The mama comes to the nest and starts stirring the nest. It's like, what? Oh, it must be going to be food. You know what she starts doing? Taking all the comfort out. Well, this is rude. Take the comfort out of the nest. Now the rocks and the thorns are exposed, and the little eagle is there. It's like, ow. Ow. I don't like this nest at all. That's the point. And I'm hungry. And then the mama comes and does something else. She starts. And she gets that eagle to the edge, pushes it out because it has to fly. Now, here's the reality in our lives. You're going to have to go get you a sword, and it's in the house of God. And you're going to have to come under that authority in order to walk in that authority. And you are anointed to go out and remit sins. You've got a receipt book with you. Go, preach the gospel. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus didn't save you to be comfortable on your down nest. He is removing the straw. He's done it many times in your life, but you thought, you interpreted the struggle as he was mad at you or somehow faith had failed you or God wasn't real at all or religion sucks. People are mean. I don't like Christians. And you ran away. And you never knew you were an eagle. Because the fact of the matter is that that discomfort, that struggle is for one thing. It's to teach you how to be a winner. It's to teach you that your destiny is not hanging out in a nest, not doing what you're called to do. Your destiny is to operate in the things of the kingdom, to know the word of God, to be under the authority, to actually be a person who leans into the conflict and discovers their intercessory role on the planet. This is what we're called to. David said, don't, don't you have a sword here? Did he know? Yeah, he took it. He took it there. He knew where the sword was at. You know, it's funny, after David killed Goliath, and we're closing here, after David killed Goliath. How many of you can tell me? Where did he take his sword? You sh I've given you an answer to this one. To the temple. Where did he take Goliath's head? The Bible says he took it to Jerusalem. Which is funny because Jerusalem at that time wasn't Jerusalem. Now, I don't know when he took it there. It was Jebus at the time. We'll talk about that later. But he took it to Jerusalem, the Bible says. You can find that. Check me. I want you all to check me. Don't believe a word I say. So he took it. The Bible says he took it. I'm saying. You better look. The Bible says he took it to Jerusalem. Why would he take the head of Goliath to Jerusalem? Well, here's the rest of the story. 
There's a place called Galgotha. Galgotha means what? The place of the skull. It has a rock formation that looks like a skull. It is taught by church teaching that David is presumed to have buried the head of Goliath at Golgotha. The place of this because it's called the place of the skull. So he took, the Bible says clearly, he took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Probably he had it and he took it there when he was a king. And it says he also kept the armor of Goliath. See, the fact of the matter is, is that Christ has destroyed all principalities and powers. Now they're not, well I'll say this, he's defeated all principalities and powers. They're not destroyed yet. See, they'll be destroyed at the end. But as far as goes for you and me, all authority in heaven and earth has been given into Christ and he has brought us into that authority. But the fact of the matter is, our authority is, is contingent upon what? Our relationship with him and being under that authority of his lordship. And so I would just, I just welcome y'all to know the Word of God, to be in the Word, to have the Word in your life and plant it in your heart so that the, that the work of the Word can accomplish what it needs to in you and a passion for souls can be ignited within you and that you see yourself as the role of an intercessor. Intercessor is not just prayer. I said that real country, didn't I? Prayer. Prayer. The role of an intercessor is a person who stands in the gap. A person. I want you to lean into the controversy and find the revelation until you have something to share on your workplace, at Walmart, with your family. Oh, is everybody going to receive it? No. This, is a con this controversy will be received by some and rejected by others. It's going to divide very households. Would you be offended by a word, by the authority of God, if it divided households, if it divided you? Most people are. When I came into the kingdom, and I, I was 11 when I got saved, when I came back to the Lord, I was 20 years old, 19. I was married to a man who was a drug addict. He's a nice guy. He was a drug addict. He was lost. He wanted to do his own thing. I tell God, if you will save me, I will serve you for the rest of my life. You know what that meant? If it divides me from my husband, I will serve. Did I have any intention of dividing from my husband? None whatsoever. But my allegiance was to the Lord. And I meant it. I meant it so much that I didn't care if it caused a fight. 
I knew God was on my side, and there is no one who can stand against the word of God. I asked the Lord what to do. He gave me step-by-step instructions of what to do, and I followed them to the T. I didn't capitulate. I didn't negotiate. I told that heathen husband of mine that he was not going to drink. Not any. He said, yeah, I am. I said, we'll see. And I said, Lord, I'm standing on your side. I said, I need you to make him sick every time he takes a drink of anything. The Lord said, done. He couldn't swallow a drink of beer that he wasn't vomiting in the front yard. What's going on? I said, you can't drink because I said, God, make him throw up. God's on my side. So, just kept going. And I went to church, and he went to church. And I went to church, and he went to church. And the next thing I know, this heathen husband of mine is saved and filled with the Spirit. And then, my goodness, what a turnaround I got. I got more than I bargained for because the thing I never wanted happened. I told God, I'll do anything but be in ministry. Absolutely anything but me in ministry. But you see, the sword of God's authority is here. And so I had to lean into all those controversies. And I had to get all that revelation from those controversies. And I had to stand on the side of God, even if it meant it divided me. Because the sword was in my life. I, got my, I gave up my cloak of comfort. And I got my sword. And the sword gave me a backbone and a boldness and a resolve and a purpose. And then I took that sword and I applied it. And that's just a little dumb story of mine. But it brings me all the way sitting behind this desk tonight and preaching. And the heathen man leading your youth. And pastoring this church. Because that is the kind of power God has. But it takes someone who will stand for the side of the sword. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us a resolve. Help us, Lord, to know you. God, I pray... you would make us uncomfortable uncomfortable with our sin uncomfortable with our complacency uncomfortable God with our 
paralysis, with our numbness. God, awaken us to the day and to the hour. Give us a hunger and a fervency for your word. God, let nothing that is preached across the pulpit, God, come to our ears with ignorance, God. Let us have already been in the word and know your precepts and, God, walk according to them. God, I pray that you would give us a thirst and a hunger that we may be filled tonight. We give you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. And we close tonight, and I know that I got some grumblings, but some of you have already taken them. Beginning January 1, we'll be taking a 90-day challenge. 90 days. Oh, no, I heard another grumble. <laughs> 90, now, not everybody's going to do this, and I understand, and this is not something that I would expect everybody to do. But if you can, a 90-day challenge to read the Bible through in 90 days. Now, here it is. We're going to read it through chronologically. Chronological. You got it. You know what I mean. In time order. Now, how many of you have ever read the Bible through in 90 days? Oh, 90 days? You've read the Bible through. Now, why? You say, why do you want us to do this? Because I believe that so many people in the house of God see the Bible as this mountain. You know what I mean? Like this mountain, this whole elephant, this, I just, and we give ourselves a year to read the Bible through. But with that much time, what happens is we're like, oh, well, I didn't get it this year. A year is a long time to try to stick to something, isn't it? But I believe that if you can read the Bible through in 90 days and show yourself that you can do it, and you can, by the way, you absolutely can, that then the Bible is not so daunting. And furthermore, when you put it together like that, it comes together in a context that brings understanding to you that it doesn't have to be so mystifying anymore. So who wants this? Look, here they are. Y'all come and get them. It's been asking me the question, can we listen to the Bible? I don't care what you do. I kind of want you to cast your eyes to the page. I would ask you, because that's part of it. You know what I mean? Getting familiar. It's another learning if you're actually looking. But if you've got to listen to it some, I get that. That's up to you. But I would ask you, don't put it on and go to sleep. You know, you need to be, con it needs to be somewhat comprehensive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> See, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. I know. You'll be done in no time, won't you? I know. So, yes. Well, here. Well, you, can, you have no job, so you can read it continually now. Who else wants one? All right. Oh, y'all just come up here and get them. I like a good people. Y'all dismissed tonight. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for being here. Gosh, I love all these challenges. Come on, y'all can do this. Hey, if you fail, you hadn't hurt yourself, have you? There you go. Look at y'all.